I didn't know what to call this episode. It was Empire and Identity, Empire and Revisionist History, Empire and the Dark Age. When I was a kid, early medieval history was called the Dark Ages. People told me that we didn't know much of what happened at that time. But it turns out the Dark Ages went dark not because of a lack of history or knowledge, but because it served later empires to suppress the story. The period after the fall of Rome and before the ascent of Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire starting in the year 800, also happens to coincide with the Golden Age of Islam. The Prophet Muhammad was born in 570, and his people had conquered much of Central Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and the Iberian Peninsula by the year 750. They consolidated the world's knowledge, translated it to a common language, Arabic, recruited scholars and scientists to the giant cities they built in the Middle East. And, this is the part you probably don't know, it appears that they established kingdoms throughout the British Isles and settled Muslims in many of those parts. I first learned about this when doing research for my next novel. I write historical fantasy, and I decided to set my story in the darkest period of history, thinking that that would give me cover and freedom to create whatever I wanted. But the more I researched, the more astounding the real story became. This is the story of the Phoenician Irish and the Mauritanian Welsh, of the Islamic Kingdom of Middle England in Mercia, of all the peoples intermingled with the Angles, the Saxons, the Vikings, and the Celts to create a British melting pot that a more recent empire would expunge and replace with the myth of some pure white Aryan race. Race is a social construct from Western European intellectuals created just 250 years ago, mostly to justify slavery and imperialism, as the empire who controls identity is the one who controls the people it rules. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You'd think that an African Muslim British Isles was the historical fantasy, but the real fiction is the story of have been handed by white supremacy regimes that ruled later. Remnants of this ideology pervade and color our world today. So it behooves us to learn where we came from and why others are so determined to erase that history. So how and why? Victorian scientists became obsessed with measuring the variation of skin color across the British Isles. They developed the coefficient of racial likeliness and the index of negrescence, some complicated statistical equation used to measure skin color at that time. They eagerly started to segregate the British and Irish populations accordingly. This was quickly abandoned when the results did not fit with their artificial racial constructs of how the world should look. The results revealed that the people they called Celts were overwhelmingly darker than Anglo-Saxons, and were generally characterized by black raven hair, especially in the western half of Ireland and West Britain. Labeling these people as Celts was a misnomer, a catch-all to separate the Irish and Welsh from the Anglo-Saxon English. The 1862 book from this time, Races of Britain, claimed that geniuses had smaller jaws and that Irish, Welsh, Celts had ape-like jaws and, quote, Africanoid faces. 
phrenology and Darwinism were all the rage at the time, and people latched on to this idea. It was a false theory, just racist propaganda that served to justify the English domination over other groups in these islands. So who were the original Irish? Ireland was colonized by six successive tribes going back 10,000 years. The Formorians, Partholonians, Nemedians, Firbolgs, Tuatha de Danann, and finally the Milesians. Modern DNA, archaeology, and ancient documents corroborate this diversity. Several of these tribes came from Greece, and others came from Scythia in Central Asia, Egypt, Sudan, Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and Mauritania. All of these migrants are more indigenous to Ireland than any Celtic, Roman, Germanic tribes, and the modern makeup of the UK as a whole is a gene soup in a melting pot, not unlike the United States. Southern Ireland was connected to Aquitaine in ancient France, North Africa, and the Middle East. Even the most Irish word, shamrock, is similar to a word for a three-leafed plant in Arabic. That's one of the clues people use to trace origins. Banana refers to a fruit in dozens of languages, but only in Arabic does the word banan mean finger, and a bunch of bananas is sometimes called a hand. When people's language, beliefs, and DNA carry traces to another people elsewhere in the world, we know that these cultures are somehow related. Academics often dismissed these ties because words and ideas can be borrowed. But the DNA evidence affirms that ancestors of the people of the British Isles come from many parts of the world. Carbon dating of human remains from this time tells us that about a third of the people buried in these places lived in a much warmer climate and had eaten a Mediterranean diet, suggesting a lot of travel or migration from the Mediterranean. Central Europeans, Aryans, Vikings and Celts, the so-called white groups of Europe, are the least represented groups genetically. But deciding which groups matter in the mix is one of the tools empires use to shape an identity and suppress the forces that would unite our world. Supremacy cannot tolerate diversity, and it works to erase the past. When archaeologists first excavated ancient Greek and Roman cities in the 20th century, Many statues were found with flecks of color, red pigment on lips, black pigment on coils of hair, gold leaf, and mirror-like gilding on the limbs. The curators had been scrubbing away these traces of color before presenting them to the public. History books and museums presented a false, whitewashed view of the past. Their view that they were, quote, cleaning these relics is an example of Eurocentric vandalism of the past. And until recently, this practice was kept secret. What's the real diversity in ancient Ireland? Well, taken together, the evidence that has been surmounting paints a picture of an interconnected ancient world, full of people with many skin colors, living together, bound into groups by their beliefs and their kinship, not segregated by skin color. Some Irish beliefs and practices have more in common with Sufi Islam than with Romans and Christianity, they believed in the evil eye, which originates from Greece, polygamous marriage, and in the she, supernatural beings that correspond to the jinn of Islam, or what you might have known them as genies. Ireland, in the first millennium, was a place where a man could have more than one wife. Saying God bless 
helped ward off the evil eye. Christian priests were afraid of healers with second sight, and it was normal for ordinary peasants to see Jin, or she. Gnostics, Coptic Christians from Egypt, and even Muslim Moors found a safe place in Ireland at this time. Just compare this example of Irish Sean Nos singing with Muslim Azan prayer calls from the East. I've interspersed two male singers one after the other. References to skin color in Irish and British and Welsh folklore give us a hint of how diverse the ancient inhabitants were. Irish annals give the location of ancient burial mounds and battle sites that have been verified by archaeologists. But history is overwritten by conquering tribes. The word Welsh is derived from Anglo-Saxon walwa, which means foreigner or dark one. Likewise, Cornwall, to the south, is an Old English word referring to foreigners. What about the Scots? Well, the original inhabitants of Scotland were a tribe called the Picts. They were named for their, quote, painted appearance in Latin. Did they have tattoos? Or did they use henna? Or were they some unusual skin color? It isn't clear. But it strikes me as significant that all the names for these groups highlight their darker appearance and their foreignness to those who would later go on to write the history books. So who were the Celts really? The language most people know as Celtic today is misattributed. That language probably came from seafaring merchants, traders who came to the British Isles centuries before the actual Celtic groups did, such as the Gauls. This language borrows more from North Africa and the Middle East than it does from the languages of continental Europe or Scandinavia. There's even an account from the 1900s of a British soldier in Morocco who understood local villagers speaking a Berber dialect that happened to be full of Gaelic words. But calling Irish Celtic a Berber dialect challenges the identity that so many people have grown up with. Even ancestry sites confuse this. I found one with a breakdown of the British population that listed the percent of Irish heritage, only they use the same genetic markers that are prevalent in Africa. And though I can't clear up this confusion, I know that calling the Irish or Welsh Celts ignores the diversity of all the people who have migrated in earlier waves to these islands. What about Stonehenge? Irish and Scottish folklore say these stone circles were built by Africans. Merlin stated that in ancient times the giants from Africa who once inhabited Ireland, who other sources call the Formorians, brought these stones from Africa and used them to cure ailments. The Phoenicians and Carthaginians, which are the same people, had mapped the coast of Africa through Senegal and there exist pockets of Lebanese communities among the coast here to this day. And personally, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer living in the Gambia, I came across an archaeological site that was along the river and it looked just like an African copy of Stonehenge. 
which is rather strange. I had no idea what to make of it at the time. I didn't take the possibility of a connection between the Celts and West Africa seriously, because why would I? Never heard anything about this. These sites are thousands of miles apart, but the evidence remains that far-reaching parts of the ancient world were more connected now than we thought. The book from the 12th century, called The History of the Kings of Britain, gives an account of Gormund the African who landed in Ireland with 100,000 troops. He launched an invasion of Britain, conquering England, and then he gifted the land to the Saxons. This then became Mercia, which was ruled by King Offa from 757 to 796. Why did this Anglo-Saxon king produce Islamic coins proclaiming there is no god but Allah in Arabic? and had his face and name on the other side of the coin. Both Irish and Welsh ancient books describe how either Africans or Arabians expelled the Romans and Britons around this time. Why focus on how the British Empire treated Irish and Welsh identity? Because that empire and all empires follow a similar pattern. After the Second World War, the British Empire was forced to decolonize in large part because Gandhi's successful nonviolent resistance in India proved the model. One part of this walking away was Operation Legacy. Here are excerpts from a British commentator explaining this via Novara Media. Despite claims to the contrary, Britain is among the most secretive states in the world. MI6, for example, has never made a single page of a single document public since its creation in 1909. The idea that Britain's empire was more progressive than those of other European powers is a myth. But the fact it's widely believed required erasing history as a matter of state policy. How extensive was Operation Legacy and what kind of documents did it destroy? Well, we have something of an answer as a result of an instruction from colonial secretary. He wrote that post-independence nations should not be handed material that might embarrass Her Majesty's government, embarrass members of the police, military forces, public servants, or others such as police informers. With long-held documents on political parties and trade unions, first among those set for destruction. Alongside them were any papers which might be interpreted as showing religious intolerance on the part of Her Majesty's government, and all papers which might be interpreted as showing racial discrimination against Africans. We might think the British Empire was less racist and bigoted than others, and it somehow prepared the countries it ruled over for democracy. But that's partly because the records demonstrating otherwise were systematically destroyed. Between 1902 and 1961, the White Highlands of Kenya were exclusively reserved for white Europeans. It was a similar situation in Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, and elsewhere. In Kenya, for example, the weeding of official documents was particularly necessary after the suppression of the Mau Mau uprising. That struggle saw 1.5 million of the Kikuyu people put in detention camps. During this period, white settlers openly called for the extermination of the Kikuyu, while mass torture was used. It's important to say that such an admission of the truth happened against all of the odds. The battle to erase history so it can be rewritten seems to be the battle of our times. Embedded in Trump's Make America Great Again slogan is an implicit call to empire. That fervor to rule over the world instead of living alongside others continues to be as great a threat now as ever. 
even with the former guy out of the picture. Why? Because Trump didn't plant the idea. He exploited an urge to empire that already existed. Make America Great Again wasn't paying homage to FDR's vision of a country that takes care of its poor while supporting democracy around the world. It was an appeal to become an empire in the mold of Putin's Russia, a country that prospers by bullying the weak, ravaging the land, and stamping out the very diversity of people and voices and ideas that empires cannot allow. If we don't channel public sentiment away from embracing empire, away from a blasé attitude towards the way America treats the other, then the next despot will pick up where the former guy left off. Only he will be more competent, younger, more dangerous, and much harder to stop. You've just heard a critical race theory lesson, exactly the sort of thing some people are trying to outlaw in schools and universities right now. I hope you've enjoyed this, but know that knowledge alone will not stop the tide. We have to build relationships bridge the divide, and strengthen diversity. We have to replace one identity with another identity that is not threatened by seeing the whole world as one people. This has been Profits Against Empire, a podcast of the Search for Living Profits brand, Season 3. I hope you will like this wherever you get your media and share it with others. And... I appreciate the time you've taken. Until next time.